Our reading comes from James chapter 1 today. Again, we're in this little series on, a little mini-series on the Word of God and how we're all getting together. We're trying to read Scripture together. I encourage you, if you haven't already had one, to get a, a, one of our little brochures on how to read the Bible in two years. We're doing that together as a church. And uh, as you're in James 1, for those of you not familiar with Scripture, James 1 is near the back of the Bible. And uh, if you just go to Revelation and a few uh, pages before that, a few books before that, you'll find James. King, words of wisdom. That's what James is. It's kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. And listen to what James says about the Word, even in our text today. In James 1, starting in verse 22. But be doers of the Word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many of you can probably relate to this story. Uh, The story is of a mom, and she says this. She says, I walked into the living room to find toys scattered everywhere and a very forlorn figure sitting in the midst of them, about ten times, and was surprised to find that little, if any, progress had been made in that time that I had been away. Hey, buddy, it doesn't look like you've done what I asked you to do and picked up your toys. It should be done by now. Why haven't you obeyed? He flopped his arms out and said in a distraught voice, I'm struggling right now, so I can't clean up my toys. Why are you struggling? I questioned. Because, he replied, I just don't want to obey right now. That probably hits home, maybe a little too close to home for some of us, that many times maybe we are like that little boy, where we're a little more overt, where we don't want to comply, we don't want to obey just simply because... We don't want to. Maybe we would call it struggling, or maybe you've even felt that Romans 7 struggle that some of you maybe are familiar with, that passage where Paul talks about that which I don't want to do, I do. You know, and you see that real struggle, that real wrestling that's going on. Maybe that has been you at different points in life. Maybe that is you this morning. And maybe that's done things to you. Maybe that you feel that frustration which is really the anger, the anger of the inability to do what you know is right. But maybe you feel discouraged, that motivation to keep trying. Or maybe you've resigned yourself, resignation, where you're like, I'm just going to keep doing it. And so, you know, I'm home with him. But maybe it's a little more passive, a little more covert. Maybe it's a little more resistant. And maybe it goes a little something like this. Unconsciously, you think, well, I'm a Christian, and I know I'm not saved by works. I know that I can't keep God's law perfectly. 
I know I need a Savior. Jesus Christ came and he is my perfect obedience. I am in relationship with him and no, no longer under the law, but I'm, I'm under grace. The law has been fulfilled and it's been done away with in Christ. And I am bound to Christ and obligated only to serve him. I'm in relationship with him. So to have a list of requirements on top of this seems a little distorted. Actually, it seems like it affects the relationship. Like that isn't a part of what relationship looks like. I'm not sure where you guys are this morning. If any of those things I've just said hits home for you and your heart. But I want you to think about that this morning. Where do you struggle? When it comes to obedience, what does that struggle look like for you? Because as we jump into this passage, as we engage it, I feel really weak standing up here to be preaching to you about obedience on my own heart that I know has been disobedient this week. But that's where the hope comes in this morning that I hope you and I grab a hold on to because it doesn't lie with us. It lies with Christ. Well, James chapter 1, verse 22, it says, as Dean read for us, it says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And as Dean said, it's <clears throat> the book of James can be classified as like the wisdom or the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, we know it's a letter from chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, but we also know it's wisdom literature. Basically, what that means is it helps you apply the truth of Scripture to your lives. And James is all about that. As you look there in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, you can see that he is presupposing he's writing to Christians. He's writing to followers of Jesus, that his audience has a relationship with Christ. He says in verses 2 and 3 that he calls them my brothers, and then he says, your faith. And here he is talking to Christians, but he tells them to be doers of the word. And that's informative for us. In other words, just because we are saved, it doesn't what does that look like? How do we understand this? Well, as we go through this this morning, you want to have your device out, your Bible, because we're going to turn and look at different places as we think about being doers of the word. James chapter 1 is probably the launch pad, I'll say, and we're going to be going throughout Scripture, so you'll want to uh, follow along with me this morning. But as we think about this, if you go back to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, you see there this clear picture that God is coming to his people and that God has called and set apart a people to himself and that he wants these people to obey and to follow him. You can see this in Exodus 6-7 where God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Throughout Exodus, you can see then that God then calls Israel to obedience. Exodus 20, for example, the Ten Commandments. That would be a prime example where you see this. But this continues. It isn't just in Exodus, the Old Testament. You see this continued throughout Scripture. As you turn the pages, if Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is a great example. <clears throat> and if you were to look in chapters 1 through 3, you see Paul laying out, this is what God has done. God has come to you. He has called you. He has made you his own. You are his. He has saved you. Chapter 4, verse 1, the therefore that you see so many times in the New Testament in Scripture. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1 says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling 
to which you have been called. You see, you may know this, you may not. Christianity teaches that because of what God has done, you are now able, you are now able and you are called to walk in his ways. Uh, Before, as Paul says in chapter 2, 1 through 3, he says, this is what you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then Paul says this. Look at verses 4 through 6. But God, right? This is what you were, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so that is what you were, This is what God has done. But now, therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. And that's a call to all of us. We are now able and we are now called to walk in obedience to him. You see, before, we could not serve him. We could not be obedient. We could not please him. As it says in Romans 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You see, there needed to be a change in us. We were sinful, unable to please him, but God. But God. Beautiful, beautiful words. He changed us. He drew us to himself. And we now have the Holy Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit in us, enabling us to follow him. And now with a changed heart, our desires are different. They're not perfect. They're not flawless. We have that struggle. But our desires are different. We want to please him. We want to serve him. And we're postured toward him. And we have been saved. And we're now able and called to walk in his ways. So is the conclusion then, like Nike, just do it? Is that the conclusion here? An action. It is an action and it is an attitude. For example, if I were to give <clears throat> my girls the instructions telling them, go, go clean your room. And they turn, they stomp their feet, they complain as they go to clean the room, and then they clean the room. Is that obedience? What if I say, go clean your room, and they turn and they say, sure, dad, and they go skipping down the room, down the hallway, into the room. 30 minutes later, I find them on that obedience. You see, on the one hand, yes, did they go do it? Yes, but where was their heart? On the other side of that, did they go do it? No, but their heart was in a great place. They had great intent, started with great effort, but didn't have good follow-through. You see, obedience, it contains both an attitude and an action. As we look through the scriptures, scriptures hold out to us that we are to be wholeheartedly devoted to following Christ. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, even as we sang this morning, that first song that we sang. And Paul, he kind of, he brings these two things together. 
if you were to turn over to Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, you can see Paul bring these two things together, the action and the attitude. And this is what he says in verses 8 through 10. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, Paul is saying love is not just a feeling, it's an action. He brings the Ten Commandments into that to show you that. It's not just an attitude, it's actually an action. Obedience is not just an attitude, it's actually an action. You can't divorce those two things, they have to come together. But maybe you're thinking, okay, so, so what use is it then? Because didn't Christ come and fulfill the law? Didn't he come? Well, isn't he my perfect obedience? So what's the point? Why is the law important? Those are good questions. If you were to look throughout Scripture, what has been categorized uh, over time by different theologians has been called the three uses of the law. And this is something that is distilled from Scripture because it's woven throughout Scripture. And it's called the three uses of the law. In other words, the, one, the first use of the law that you can see in Scripture, specifically in Romans 13, is called the civil use. And think of the law in this sense like a straitjacket, right? Straitjacket, if someone has it on, they can't get out even though they want to, right? So it's something that restrains sin. It doesn't do anything about the behavior. It's mere behavior modification, you could say. But it just restrain, restrains sin, because what God has done is God has empowered the governing authorities and rulers, right, to punish evil, to reward good. That's something that's very good, and that's a very good use of the law in society, to restrain evil. Romans 13 is, that, is a good text for that in verses 1 through 7, but specifically 3 through 4, where Paul says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so we see that the law serves that purpose of this, this civil use, like a straitjacket. But then there's a second use. Sometimes referred to as the pedagogical use, which is uh, the law here works like a harsh taskmaster. In other words, you can't do it perfectly. You can't measure up to its demands 24-7, 365 for all of your every moment of your life. And so what the law does here is it shows you that you not only can you not keep it, but your need of Christ. And so it functions like this harsh taskmaster, but it shows you your need of Christ. Paul talks about this in different passages, but one in particular, uh, it, where it shows us our need of Christ and how he has met that standard for the law. In Romans 8, verses 3 through 4, Paul says this, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He is our obedience. That is true. We cannot keep it perfectly in our own strength, but he enables us by his Spirit. But there's something that we have to understand. We have to understand that what Christ did, there was a great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, through faith in Christ, a great exchange has taken place. He has taken our sin upon himself. He's paid for it. But we've gotten something, we've gotten something in return. We've received, we've been clothed with his righteousness. For example, if you were to go to Isaiah 61, verse 10, you would see that we are clothed in the righteousness, this beautiful white garment, so to speak, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in Christ with all of our sin, ugliness, and brokenness, but rather he sees us in this beautiful, white, clean, spotless gown, you could say. He sees us like that. You see, there has been this great exchange, and he is our perfect obedience. It's true. He did what we couldn't. He succeeded where we failed. He kept the law perfectly, and then he suffered the consequences as if he had broken that very law. And he stood in our place, and he is our obedience. Sin has been paid for. Righteousness has been given. And the power of sin has been broken in our lives objectively. But you, like me, you know the truth, don't you? That, But yet we still struggle. The power of sin has been broken, but yet its presence is still there. And we feel that Romans 7 struggle, that which I want to do, I do not do, because sin is there. And it, sometimes it, it weighs us down. But we have our inability. But our inability is meant to drive us to help and hope in Christ. It's not meant to lead us to despair or frustration or resignation or beating ourselves up, but to look to the one who was and is our perfect obedience. It's because of him that we serve him and only him. And then out of that, because we have his spirit, we are enabled to live for him. This is something Paul talks about also in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And so the law, it drives us to Christ. But then lastly, thirdly, it is something that is a guide for holy living. Think of it as like railroad tracks. The train is on the railroad tracks, stays on the tracks. God's law operates a lot like this. It is, our, it is the, what's called a normative use, that it is our guide for holy living, how we are to live. Even in our call to worship this morning, we saw that. We saw an example of this, this third use of the law. In, the, in Psalm chapter 1, we read this morning in our call to worship, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. If the second use of the law is to show us our need for Christ, the third use of the law 
shows us how to live for Christ. And as we come face to face with who he is through faith in Jesus Christ, we see his law in a new light. We want to purpose to live for him. We want to respond and to love him by keeping his commandments, not in order to save us. It does not save us, does not earn us salvation, but rather as a loving response from a changed heart and mind. I asked you at the beginning, where are you in terms of obedience? Do you feel frustration? Do you feel resignation? Do you feel discouraged? Do you feel frustrated? Do you feel even resistant sometimes to it? Where are you? I stand as this week, I found myself needing to come time and time again. You see, I have a hard time letting go of the tyranny of the urgent. I don't know where you are, but that's me. The tyranny of the urgent. And it's hard for me to sit down and actually outside of my regular times to really sit down and let those things go because I need to be with him. I need to taste of him. Where are you this morning? What frustrates you? What has you resigning yourself or maybe even wondering, will I ever get better or is this it until Christ comes? Where are you this morning? Some of you know the story of Joshua and the Old Testament. Some of you are familiar with the Old Testament book called Joshua. And if you're not familiar with this story in this part of the Bible, Joshua is, has succeeded uh, Moses, who was the previous leader. And Joshua is leading God's people into the land that God promised. And so here he is on the cusp of going into this land that needs to be conquered. It's the land that's been given to them. And God comes to Joshua in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and he says this. He says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to the fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do it. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Did you catch that? If you want to be careful to do according to all that is written, what is God's command to Joshua? Meditate on it. Isn't that interesting? God tells Joshua not just to read it, to speak it, but he tells them to take it in, to sit with it, to think about it, to internalize it, to go over it again and again internally. If you were to go back into the Hebrew scriptures and look at the words for meditation that are used, there's two words that are used. And this is where we get our understanding of what meditation is. In one sense, um, it means to say something over and over. In another sense, it means to chant in kind of a low voice. And so we put those things together in Scripture and we come and we meditate and we internalize and we say something over and over again from Scripture that reminds us of who He is and His promises. Meditation is interesting. Meditating upon Scripture 
has a way of changing duty into delight. It has a way of doing that. As I was telling you earlier, I found myself this week that even putting together this sermon, every sermon is not necessarily easy to put together, but putting this one together, especially on obedience, right? And coming to this idea of meditation and knowing that many times I fall far short, knowing that too many times I let the tyranny of the urgent get in the way. And I don't meditate. I don't feel like I can let go of all that's out there, of all that has to be done. I can't let go and set that aside in order to be with him. But the thing about meditation, when you go into it, it really does work in your heart. Because when you meditate, when you sit down, when you stop, when you push everything else aside, and you sit down with him, you are confronted with him. in a great way. You're confronted in a great way to reflect on who he is and who he has been. You reflect on his promises, what he has done, his character, and his incredible love for you and what he's done for you. You know, there is no parallel to the love that we've been shown in Christ, is there? To sit down and to think about that, there is no parallel. There are examples, but there is no love like this where the God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, condescended, came down, took on flesh, humbled himself, died on the cross for our sins so that we could have life through faith in him. There is no parallel. There is no parallel. Some of you may be familiar with... um, this book called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. Um, I encourage you to take up and read. it's, It's really good to meditate on. But there's one prayer in there I love called Divine Support. And there's a section in there I just want to read for you because it's hit home really for me and I've I've kept it over time. I come back to again and again. And it says this let your unexampled love constrain me into holy obedience and render my duty, my delight. Let your unexampled love constrain me into holy obedience and render my duty, my delight. How do you struggle this morning? Are you frustrated? Are you discouraged? Are you resigned? Are you maybe even a little resistant? I want to invite you this morning to come. Come and meditate upon the one who has loved you, sacrificed himself for you so that you could have everlasting life. The one who we see his character in his word. Take it in. Think upon it. Run it around in your mind. Internalize it. Sit with it. And may you be constrained into an obedience that causes your duty to him to be your delight in him. Let's pray. Father, we, we pause, we come before you and we recognize 
That many times we follow you out of duty without delight. That many times we have the best of intentions, but we don't follow through because we don't feel like it. Father, we come to you this morning and we come before you and we ask for forgiveness. We ask, Father, that you would forgive us and that you would help us, Father, to endeavor to follow you, to hear your word, hear your truth, and to obey. To obey because we have been loved first by you. May that overflow from our hearts and may your love constrain a holy obedience in us so that our duty to you would truly be our delight in you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.